you know, Christy and I, uh, we, we love, 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 love you. And we are so grateful that God has allowed us to be here. And um, 12 years ago, uh, we made the move away from Kentucky uh, to move down here. Now, when I'm born and raised in Lexington, and when growing up as a UK fan my entire life, I always thought we had a pretty strong rivalry with Louisville. We didn't like each other. We'd compete. But there was a pretty good, you know, disagreement here and there. But then we moved here. (laughs) And I should have known when I was interviewed to become the student pastor here at Westwood 12 years ago that one of the first questions I heard was, and you can finish the sentence before I say it, is, Auburn or Alabama, you have to, you have to choose. Okay, uh, they re- would not accept me saying, "Well, I'm a Kentucky fan." They rejected that in Jesus' name. <laughs> and even to this day, Christy and I will still sometimes look at each other and laugh, like these people are crazy. <laughs> you have to choose, and. It's something that you, you have to commit to here within this culture. Well, I think it's also a great parallel to the gospel in that when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to choose. Either you are going to follow Jesus or you are going to reject Jesus. And to not choose is to choose. Well, what we see in Acts 13 is Paul and Barnabas preaching Christ and inviting people to believe in Jesus. And there are some who will reject the message, and there are some who will receive the message. But either way, you have to choose. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We are going through the book of Acts together as a faith family in a sermon series called Sent, in which we're just walking through this great historical narrative of the early church and how the church was born and how Christ not only has saved a people, but he is making a people for himself. Paul and Barnabas are on Paul's first missionary journey, and they've made their first uh, stop in the island of Cyprus where they traveled the entire island preaching the gospel. They had an opportunity to share Christ with proconsul Sergius Paulus and led him to faith in Christ. But that mission uh, stop there was not without opposition, for there was a man named Elymas, a sorcerer, who tried to stop the preaching of the gospel. And Paul told him, you are going to go blind for your disobedience to the gospel. And sure enough, he does. Paul and Barnabas then leave Cyprus and they head to Perga in Pamphylia, which is in modern day Turkey. Once they arrive, John Mark, chapter 13, verse 13, leaves them and heads back to Jerusalem. He jumps ship. He abandons the team. Now, this is a significant moment amongst church leadership. The text does not tell us why John Mark leaves, But what we see here is that it's going to cause some conflict in leadership. 
When we get to Acts 15, we're going to see where the Apostle Paul refuses for John Mark to join him on his second missionary journey. He didn't want this guy jumping ship again when time started getting hard. So the groups split up. Paul took Silas and went with him, and Barnabas will, will take, Mar, uh, take John Mark, and they will go their separate ways. Now, we're going to unpack this more than when we get to Acts 15, but since we're introduced to it here in chapter 13, verse 13, I do just want to kind of press pause for just a minute. In the reality, there's going to be times where godly people who love Jesus are going to have conflict. We see it right here uh, in the early church amongst church leadership. And this is true in your life, in your marriage, and in, in family, and even in churches. There's times where there's, there's conflict between godly people. The, the key is that when conflict does arise, that we respond with truth and grace. We posture our hearts with love and humility. And we, we, we seek God to have wisdom and grace to love and lead people through this. What I think is really encouraging is that when Paul is getting to the end of his life, he's in a Roman prison cell awaiting execution. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. He, he tells him uh, this. He's inviting him to, hey, bring me my, my parchments, bring me my, my cloak. But he says this in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. At some point, Paul and Mark, they, they reconciled. And as Paul is in a Roman prison awaiting death, he longs for his co-laborer, Mark, who's still preaching Christ and holding fast to the faith to come and join him. Now, we've kind of gotten ahead of ourselves. We're going to unpack that more further. But since it's introduced here in the text in verse 13, I kind of wanted to make sure we touch on that before we make the transition. After John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas, they make their way inland toward Pisidian Antioch. It's a city in modern-day Turkey. There in the synagogue, Paul is given an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jews. Paul stands up and he preaches the word of God. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 13. And let's start there in verse 14. The scripture says this. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Now, if you've ever wanted to hear the Apostle Paul preach a sermon, here you go. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he went up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. 
Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not the one, but one is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled them, fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father." As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the structure of Paul's sermon and the necessity to respond to the invitation of the gospel. I want you to see this first. I want you to see the survey of the Old Testament landscape. Paul gives a 30,000-foot view of the Old Testament. He, he doesn't give a deep dive into the, into the specific stories of people and places and events, but rather he gives a, a broad overview here. 
Paul's progression through the Old Testament from slavery in Egypt to the exodus to the wilderness for 40 years to Joshua entering the promised land and the conquest of Canaan to the judges to Samuel the prophet to the king starting with Saul and to King David. From the exodus to King David reign, Paul covers 560 years of biblical history in six verses. Now, a common theme that you will see in Paul's preaching throughout Acts is that he adjusts his evangelistic approach based upon his audience. If his audience is primarily Jewish, he uses the Old Testament to share the gospel. He will continually point to the law and the prophets and make a beeline to Jesus. Now, if his audience is primarily Gentile, he does not use the Old Testament. They don't know the Old Testament. So what does he do? He uses a different approach. He uses creation, conscience, and culture as springboards into the gospel. Well, here in Pisidian Antioch, Paul is in a Jewish synagogue walking through the Old Testament narrative that all of the people he's speaking to already knew by heart. He's using the Old Testament to preach the gospel. The second thing I want you to see is the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. Paul then jumps to the last prophet before Jesus, John the Baptist, verse 24 who was the forerunner, who was the trailblazer preparing the way for Jesus. Now, John made himself clear, I'm not the Messiah, but there is one coming after me that I'm not worthy to even untie the sandals on his feet. All right, so who is this Messiah? And I put this in your notes. Jesus, verse 23, is the promised son of David. Jesus, verses 24 and 25, is the one that John the Baptist was pointing towards. Jesus is the one rejected by Jewish leaders, verse 27. Jesus is the crucified Savior by Pontius Pilate, verse 28. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, verse 29. Jesus is the resurrected one who defeated death once and for all, verses 30 through 37. Now, there is an important lesson for all of us when we look at Acts 13, and it's this. The entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. We must grab hold of this. When we read the Old Testament, we can't look at it and say, okay, these are just moral principles that I can grab hold of. And it's not just saying, okay, I need to try and be like Solomon, be like David. Although we can't take those things away from it, we must first study the text in light of Jesus Christ. We read the Old Testament in its historical context, but ultimately in light of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Every book, every paragraph, every sentence is driving us to Jesus Christ. And even when there's not an explicit prediction of Jesus, there is a fulfillment of implication. 
in all of the Bible that points to Jesus and his finished work. Luke 24 says, it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. John Piper's writings have been so helpful for me in understanding the implications of this greater reality, that the law was kept perfectly by Christ, and so obeying Old Testament law is not the path to righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. We don't look to our religious works and actions to be right with God. But we look to Jesus by faith for our righteousness. Now, this is significant as we live here in the American South, in the Bible Belt, where many are trusting in their good works to get themselves to heaven. That if you ask them, what does it take to get to heaven? They will respond, well, you got to be a good person. Or you have to believe in God. It's insufficient. And I hope you'll feel the weight of this because this dictates how you respond to the gospel dictates not just the path and trajectory of your life, but for your eternity. How many people, sadly, on the last day will be rejected by Jesus and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Although they've done religious actions, they've done the religious works but their hearts have never been surrendered to Jesus. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, listen, the Old Testament is pointing us to a person. He is the fulfillment. He is the one that we go to. You see, Jesus is the one who virtually changes everything. I'm going to give you some examples. The bloody animal sacrifices from the Old Testament have stopped. Why? Well, it's because Christ fulfilled all that they were pointing toward. Through his death on the cross, Jesus is the perfect, once and for all, bloody sacrifice. The priesthood that stood between God and his people in the Old Testament has stopped. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrected great high priest who stands between God and his people forever. And so now, according to 1 Peter, we are a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. We now have direct access to God through Jesus, our high priest, who lives forever. The food laws in the Old Testament that set Israel apart from all other nations have stopped. Why? Because Christ fulfilled and ended the dietary food laws of the Old Testament. The physical temple has stopped being the center of worship. Why? Because Christ himself is the center of worship. For Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the holy of holies. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is the true temple. And so now we don't go to Mecca or Jerusalem or Rome to worship. We go to Jesus Christ. 
He is the center of all of our worship. And as Paul is preaching to the Jews in the synagogue, he's unpacking the scriptures that they already know. And he is showing them that they find their fulfillment, not in their obedience, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Your salvation is not found on you saying, man, I'm trying really hard to get to heaven. You listen to a lot of country music. That's the theme. I'm working hard to get to heaven. No, that's horrible theology. Okay, don't go to Alan Jackson for your theology. Go to the scriptures. Look at Jesus. He is the fulfillment and he is the one where you find your salvation. It's not you trusting in your good works. It's you trusting in the perfect works of Jesus for you. That verses 28 and 29, what Jesus did at the cross, he made a way through his death so that you now have access to the very presence of God through him, through his shed blood on the cross. We go to him. So all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the third thing I want you to see in the text is the invitation to trust the Messiah. You see, the gospel is not just information to understand, but it's truth to receive. The gospel is not just fast facts that you acknowledge in your brain, but it's beliefs that flow from your heart. Paul is telling his Jewish audience right here in the text, verse 38, therefore let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you and everyone who believes is justified through him. It's not by keeping the law of Moses, verse 39. It's not by keeping Old Testament rules and regulations. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the one who kept the law perfectly. You see, you are saved not by your works, but through faith in Jesus' works for you. Please anchor your soul upon this gospel. There's nothing more important than this. And you don't look to yourself to say, golly, I hope I lived a good enough life. No, you can't. It's impossible. The standard is perfection. You don't meet it. None of us do. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the response is, Jesus, that's impossible. And he's like, that's the point. I don't want you looking at yourself for your salvation. I want you looking at me. I am the perfect Messiah. I am the one who has never sinned. I am the one who has fulfilled the law. I am the one who lived a life that you couldn't live. I am the one who died the death that you deserved. I was buried in a tomb and I was raised on the third day, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. And all who hope in me will never be put to shame. Forgiveness of sins and justification is found in Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. 
Whereas Adam's disobedience in the garden brought sin into the world, and as our federal head, all mankind, we are sinners because of our first parents. But through Jesus' perfect obedience, all who trust in him are made righteous. And so Paul is inviting these Jews in Pisidian Antioch to believe the gospel, to, to trust in Christ, that they can experience forgiveness of sins and justification. Verses 38 and 39. That you're freed from the power of sin and declared righteous before God when you believe the gospel. So let me illustrate this for you. Uh, I intentionally turned this around because I think many of you might be wanting to use this for target practice. But I want to kind of unpack for you the idea of what this means of forgiveness and justification by faith. I want to unpack verses 38 and 39. What we have here are two individuals here. And if we can get this up on the screen, Stephen, so people can see this. What I want you guys to see is that this person right here is going to represent Jesus right here. And this person right here represents you. Okay? This person represents Jesus. So the character of Jesus is that he is perfect. He never sinned. He is the Savior. He is just. He is righteous before God. Jesus is perfect, just, righteous. I also throw this in here. Jesus is sinless in all of his ways. Now, the character of us is not the same of Jesus. That because of Adam, we have disobeyed the Lord. We have walked in sin. And so now we are marked by sin. And sin has, has permanently tainted us and we cannot get rid of it ourselves. And a byproduct of our sin is shame. Shame comes from sin. We see this in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve they were naked and they were ashamed. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel in Jesus is where we find forgiveness of sins. Where the blood of Jesus, verse 38, we find forgiveness of our sins. That when you believe the gospel, God in Christ takes away your sin and your shame. You bear it no more. All oh, this is such good news. That your life before Christ, that all of the stupid things that you've done, the, the sinful postures of your heart, these attitudes that you've had, all of these things that you lived in rebellion against God are wiped away. You're washed through the blood of Jesus. When you bank your soul upon the person and work of Jesus, his blood speaks a better word than your past, your sin, and your shame. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has forgiven you. Don't keep beating yourself up for your past. Jesus doesn't. You've been washed. But then verse 39, God does something else. He not only forgives you of your sin and washes you clean, but now, oh boy, here we go. When you believe the gospel, the righteousness of Christ is now applied to you. Justification by faith. The moment you believe the gospel, 
God views you as righteous and just and sinless. This is your permanent standing before God. This is what Paul is driving home here in the text. Verse 39, everyone who believes is justified through him. That word justified, it means to be made right. It's a, it's a legal term in which you stand before a judge in which you are not guilty. Not only does Jesus wipe away and wash and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, Ephesians 1.7, but God in Christ justifies you. He by his grace, he imputes, he gives the righteousness of Christ and he credited, credits it to your account. Okay, it's called the, the great exchange. Okay, at the cross, not only were your sins placed upon Jesus, but when you trust in him, his righteousness and perfection and purity is given to you. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That God has taken all of your sin, beloved, and he's nailed it to Jesus and you bear it no more. And then by his grace and for his glory, he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he credits it to your account. That you now stand before God in Christ, justified, righteous. You are just in his sight. This is what Christ has done for us. And as Paul is unpacking the gospel for these believers, excuse me, for these Jews in Pisidian Antioch, he's inviting them to trust in Jesus. Why? For the forgiveness of sins, verse 38, and justification, verse 39. And beloved, this is what God's done for you in Christ. This is why Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, um, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That indeed, Jesus comes and abides and lives inside of all who trust in Christ. Now, you and I, we've not been glorified yet. We are still at war, Romans 7, against sin and the flesh and the world. We are battling against sin and we will until we take our last breath or Jesus returns. And Paul says there in Romans 7, he says, I don't do the things that I should and I do the things that I shouldn't. What a wretched man that I am. There's this fight, this struggle against sin that you and I have to continually battle every day. And when we're 105 years old and our teeth has fallen out and we have no hair left, we're still fighting sin. We're clinging to Christ. But we know that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you and I can gather every week and we can sing with passion and gusto because Christ, our Passover lamb, who takes away the sins of the world, has forgiven us, he's washed us, and he's justified us and made us right before God. This is what Jesus has done for you. And so important to me as your pastor, you grab hold of this, that you might root your identity in who God says you are in Christ. And if you have been waiting in the baby pool of the depth of your walk with Jesus, if you've been in the shallow end of memorizing John 3, 16 and stopping there, may I say that there is an ocean of depth 
that God wants you to know him, to dive deeper into his word, to discover who he is and what he has done and how he has perfectly done it through his son. And here is Paul calling these Jews to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and so that they might be justified by faith in Jesus because the law of Moses can't do it. And so he calls them to trust in Christ, but he also gives them a warning. He says it there in verse 47. No, excuse me, verse 41. He says there, quoting Isaiah 55, he exhorts them not to scoff at this gospel message. He warns them, don't roll your eyes at this. Anybody else have teenagers in here? Don't roll your eyes at this. Don't mock this. He's warning. As the meeting comes to a close, Paul and Barnabas, they're invited to come back next week. A week later, the whole town shows up. They want to hear the word. The Jews become jealous. They don't like the popularity of these two men. They begin to contradict Paul. We then see in the text, number, two, number four, the two responses to the gospel. Rejection or rejoicing. The Jews rejected the message, verse 46. So Paul and Barnabas, they pivot and now turn their attention and focus on the Gentiles. Quoting Isaiah 49, he shows that taking the good news to the Gentiles, this has always been the plan and purposes of God. Look at the response of the Gentiles, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. As I read this text this week, I used my sanctified imagination, and I can just hear like an outburst of celebration in the room. Like these non-Jewish people, man, they're, they're fired up. Like, let's go! We get in on this! That Jesus came for us too. Can you believe it? Man, we, this is amazing. Verse 48, and they rejoiced. They honored, they celebrated. Man, we get in on this. Can you believe this? This is greater than kids finding out they don't have to take a test and they get recess and stuff. This is greater than your team signing a five-star. This is greater than getting a promotion at work. You can just hear this clapping, hey, let's go. God has sent his son, Jesus, for us too. And then before anybody gets too cocky about the salvation that they get to receive, verse 48, we see that ultimately it's God who is the one who is sovereign over salvation. <laughs> to keep us humble and to display the, the mystery and the glory of God, verse 48, all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. God is the one who appoints. God is the one who saves. His salvation is a free gift for all who believe the gospel. But didn't you see what happens? Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. The gospel is spreading. People are believing. Lives are being changed. There's great rejoicing over the word. There's rejoicing. But then the Jews stir up rebellion. There's a rejection. There's mutiny. They went from wanting to hear more from Paul and Barnabas, verse 42, to kicking them out of town, verse 50. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? They shake the dust off their feet. They're doing what Jesus said to do in uh, Luke 10 to the 72, that when you are rejected, you shake the dust off your feet. We've given you the gospel. Judgment's now on you. 
You've rejected it. We're moving on to the next town. That then begs the question, were Paul and Barnabas failures because they didn't see the response? Were Paul and Barnabas failures because they were rejected? No. Hear me on this. Success in the kingdom is not always measured in numerical response. Success in the kingdom is ultimately in faithfulness to the gospel. Now hear me. We want to see as many people as possible come to faith in Jesus. This does not minimize the desiring and laboring to see as many people as possible come to faith in Christ. There's a posture that could say, well, we're just being faithful. Well, no, you're not being effective. Okay? We want to be effective. We want to think, how can we strategically get the gospel to those who have never heard? Now, the message doesn't change. But we find creative ways to get the gospel to those who have never heard. We want to see thousands of people come to know Christ. Can we just, I just want to praise Jesus for just a minute. Over the next eight weeks, six of the next eight weeks, we're having at least two to three baptisms every Sunday. It's awesome. Then we're going to see 15 people baptized over the next eight weeks. Oh, God, that he would give us more. I want to see thousands of people stir up those waters, not for our name's sake, not for the sake of numbers, but to see lives changed for Jesus. But we also got to keep in mind, it is God who's the one who saves. So let's be faithful. Let's preach his message. Let's be as effective and creative as we can be. And let's pray for God to rescue and to save. Kenneth, what are you calling us to? It's our impact point. It's this. I want, here's what I'm asking you to do. Man, I'm asking you to receive and rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, receive and rejoice in this gospel. In Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching the gospel, and there's one of two responses, rejection or rejoicing. I now lay it at your feet. You have to choose. You can reject the gospel or you can rejoice in the gospel. And to not choose is to choose. Today, I implore you, rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ.